welcome to episode number 45 of the Her Story Speaks podcast. I'm your host, Andrea Miller, and my guest today is Carolyn Custis-James. In this episode, Carolyn shares how her story of being single for years after college led her to start searching for God's answers to her personal questions when her life just wasn't following the traditional roadmap for women. This quest for answers has inspired her writing and mission as she began looking deeply at the Bible's message for women who live outside the parameters often drawn by the church. In our conversation today, Carolyn talks about the answers she found and how God's vision for women is so much deeper and wider than she ever imagined. Carolyn not only shares her story with us, but also her passion for empowering women as God's vision for his daughters to be image bearers and joining his mission for the world. Well, today on the podcast, I have Carolyn Custis-James. Carolyn, welcome to the Her Story Speaks podcast. Thank you, Andrea. Delighted to be part of this. Well, I am thrilled to talk to you today. Um, we'll dive in a little bit to your book and your writing and all that, but I'm going to give you kind of your formal introduction. You're an award-winning author with a Master of Arts in Biblical Studies, and you think deeply about what it means to be a female follower of Jesus in a postmodern world. And that last line is why I like you and your writing so much, because you really do think deeply and you take us to another level. It's not mm-hmm. just the surface stuff that we can argue and talk about all day, but it's it's deeper. And I just love that about you and your writing. So I'm excited to talk today. Can you give us just, that was your more formal, but just kind of the day-to-day, who are you and where do you live and all that, the, the not so deep stuff, I guess. <laughs> okay. I live in Sellersville, Pennsylvania. So we're right on the edge of Philadelphia. Okay. And um, we've moved all over the place since... Uh, since the beginning of my story, which started in um, Oregon, I grew up in the state of Oregon and okay. um, pastor's daughter. And um, yeah, so, you know, it, it it's always interesting to me when I talk to women where they say, you know, this is sort of my journey is here. And on the other side is, you know, when I studied the Bible or I think about all the things that I'm hearing about what it means to be a woman. And at some point, those two strains converge. And, Mm -hmm. you know, that really happened to me. So, you know, growing up in a, you know, in a conservative, very happy um, setting, you know, I, I just had this roadmap of where I was headed and God had other plans (laughs) Well, yeah, let's talk about that. I mean, you grew up pastor's daughter in a, like mm. you just said, a conservative home, um, happy home. Like you just, you went along with that message It all. It sounded good to you and you followed that. But then I know your story uh, started to change because it didn't go as planned. And that, that story drives your writing and your passion. So talk a little bit about that, like the message you heard growing up and then when that started to shift for you and you started questioning it. Yeah. Well, I mean, I just always um, was taught and believed and observed in other women, you know, that I, who I knew in the, in the church and in my family that, you know, life begins at the marriage altar and that, um, you know, God's plan is calling. I mean, I even heard this not articulated um, by my mom or in my church setting, but I heard it other places um, that that this is a woman's highest calling. Mm -hmm. And 
I, you know, I didn't, I bought into that and um, I, I have, I have deep regrets for the way it caused me to not take advantage of the opportunities that I had or not take my life seriously. Um, but anyway, I had, I had a decade of singleness that was sort of the brick wall that I hit. And cause you yeah. went to college just, I mean, you were a smart goal oriented woman. You went to college, but you assumed that within that journey, you would get married during college and start your family after, but that, yeah. that's and, not what happened. Yeah, no, it was just, you know, it was, I mean, it was a lot of what a lot of my classmates expected mm-hmm. and, um, it didn't happen. And it, I just hit this stretch where I didn't know, I didn't know what I was doing and felt like, uh, it felt like I often likened it to, you know, like the, the uh, sports game where the, where the, where the points are just out of control. And there's a team that is, there's no way they're going to win, but they, the game you know and that's how it felt sort of like garbage time to me you know that it wasn't purposeful um in hindsight I would say everything I do today all of my ministry came out of that decade Mm -hmm. wow because it made me ask questions I couldn't follow the roadmap um and it, you know, it led to a struggle with God and to, to questions about, oh, is, does this mean that I can miss my highest calling as a woman, that <clears throat> it can be beyond my reach? And that just opened my eyes to look at what other women were doing and going through, some by choice and some because things were falling apart and made me ask it made me ask bigger questions. So, um, yeah. And I think a lot of us, you know, hear the message that, you know, we're sort of the supporting actors in God's story, <clears throat> but that we don't have um, a major role or a significant role. Right. That we're a support role. And we'll touch on more of that, but going back real quick to what you said, like the message you got was motherhood was the highest calling and which I'm guilty of probably saying that leading Bible studies for as long as I have. And not recently, because my deconstruction is starting the last couple of years and year, especially with having my own daughter that's questioned things. And but what people that might hear that say, well, what's wrong with that message? Which I know what's wrong with it, but talk a little bit like, why is that a harmful message to tell women um, in the church and in the world really, but tell, talk a little bit about that. You know, I don't, what, what it made me want to know is what is God's purpose for all of us? Right. And does it, does it begin when we begin and does it last for the entire stretch of our lives? Or is it just a season? You know, when you look at and when you say marriage and motherhood are sort of the pinnacle of a woman's calling as a woman, then, you know, major stretches of our stories are left out. I mean, according to statistics, nine out of 10 married women end up alone. Wow. And not to mention infertility, because that's something else that you talk about excluded 
you from that group as well. You struggled with the singleness and then infertility right? and how many women struggle with that. So we're leaving a huge chunk out of God's story for women if we're just focusing on that. And that's what your book, you have five, I believe that you've authored, but half this half, I was gonna say half the sky, half the church. Um, you talk about like, is his, is God's vision big enough for all women, not just those in this American sect of married with kids. Um, so your story drove you into really digging into scripture. And I know you, Genesis was a, was big for you starting with that. So Dive into that a little bit for us of how you kind of started deconstructing there right at the beginning of God's story for us and what what that showed you. Right. You know, I, I Genesis 1 and 2 are the, the only chapters of the Bible that are pre-fall. Mm-hmm. And I think we really, you know, we use this part of the Bible to argue about gender roles or to argue about evolution. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I'm convinced if we only had Genesis 1 and 2, we would have enough to light a fire under every one of us. Yeah. And, you know, that we don't look more deeply at what God is doing there because he's vision casting. He's launching the grandest enterprise that's, that has ever been launched. And he's defining who the players are in the story. And he's defining our mission. And, you know, we look at it in rather static ways, you know, when we talk about what it means to be God's image bearers, we think of equality and dignity and purpose. And we think about qualities that human beings possess that are unique to the human race and that are, you know, we find in God, like the um, intellectual abilities that we have, the fact that we have souls and that we are um, that we are capable of justice and um, education and, and just on and on and on it goes, but it's just more taxonomy than it is mission. Mm-hmm. Um, but when God names human beings, all of us, as his image bearers, he's defining our mission. And the first mission that we have is to know the God who created us to be like him. Both male and, and female in his yeah, image, if and that's means, powerful. You know, we need to be we need to be focused on knowing him, on learning what matters to him, on what he loves, learning to see the world through his eyes, and joining his mission in the world. Um, and it, and then he spreads the whole earth before humanity. You know, it's not just about church and evangelism. It's about every dimension of human life on this planet. Responsibility to care for the earth and to be rulers in the earth. And the rule is outward over creation. And it's for the purpose of flourishing, of fruitfulness, that we're supposed to live fruitful lives. It's, it's not just about reproduction. It's about using the gifts and the opportunities and the um, challenges that we face on earth. Um, and so it's, I mean, I just feel like the park in Genesis 1 and 2 
and learn a lot about this. I mean, we get a good look at God and how he's an artist and he's creative and he's generous and he's gracious and he has power that he uses to empower others and to, and he uses his power to do things that are good, you know? And so, and we're supposed to emulate him in how we live and how we use the power that he entrusts to us. And, um, and what I don't hear you saying is where I, the disconnect is, which I think in the American church is Genesis one or two is talking about man being born, born first and women submissive to him. But you're, this is a partnership. God's yeah. vision is well, you talk about this blessed alliance and yeah. talk a little bit about that. Like that's well, God's first vision and plan. Let's talk about that the man was created first, because um, what they're pointing to is a key pillar of patriarchy. Yes. And we don't see patriarchy until after the fall, when we hear the curse that the man is going to rule over his wife. Okay, so now the rule that's defined in Genesis 1 is undermined and turned against one another. And it's not just that men end up being over women, but they're, you know, also over other men. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the patriarchy that comes after the fall is n- not just destructive to women, it's destructive to men. Yes. And what you find when you read the book, just the book of Genesis is that primogeniture, which makes the firstborn son in the family a crown prince. He's the chief uh, over all his siblings. His younger brothers are gonna look to him for leadership. He's gonna have his, he's gonna be his father's right arm. He's gonna be more privileged and empowered than they are. He's gonna get twice as much inheritance as his brothers and he's going his sisters are going to get nothing. So everything is tilted under primogeniture and it wreaks havoc in the patriarchal families. Mm-hmm. And, and what you find is that as, as you go through Genesis is that God isn't choosing son number one. You know, he doesn't choose Ishmael. He chooses Isaac. He doesn't choose Esau. He chooses Jacob. He doesn't choose Reuben or Simeon or Levi, Jacob's first three born sons, he chooses number four. He doesn't even choose, you know, Jacob chooses number 11, but God chooses number four. But what happens, what comes out of that is murder, competition, mm-hmm. violence, um, plots and cover-ups and crimes and even human trafficking you know so read the story of the patriarchs this is not something beautiful that the human race is experiencing it's destructive and it destroys the one at the top you know who's who ends up at the top because there's abuse of the others or you know lording it over the others which is not in genesis one and two and by and by so by the time you get to the end of Genesis, primogenitor is dismantled. You know, and even later on, God chooses 
David, who's son number seven. It was yeah. it, that would be an outrage in in patriarchy. I met a a man who was from Tanzania, a seminary student here, and who was his father's firstborn. And I asked him, what is it like to be the firstborn in your family? And it was shocking mm -hmm. the, the change in his demeanor because he just rose up like in, in, a, in a regal posture. <laughs> and he said, I am my father's confidant. He makes no decisions without me. He, I am over my brother's and sisters, they look to me for leadership. I will build my father's name and his estate. You know, it just, yeah. So with that lens, the Bible, which a couple things here. So you say in your book that the, there's an irony that the 21st century, we look to an ancient Middle Eastern text for our answers, but we can't necessarily do that because this was written 2000 years ago in a time where patriarchy ruled but god and jesus are flipping that upside down with all those examples that you just gave that he's not go they're not god's not going that's not his plan is to have patriarchy so we can't even look to adam being born first and ruling over eve that that is god's plan so why do you think the church still struggles so much with this because obviously we do um I mean, in and outside the church, all over the world we do, but why, why does the American church struggle with it? We're not in this Middle Eastern culture. Why do we right. still say this whole submissive wife? And yeah, yeah talk a little bit about that. We could go all over, and I'm really just trying to pray for focus because I'm like, you don't even know how many, <laughs> how many things I have down. So talk a little okay. bit about that one. Why well, we struggle? Patriarchy impacts every culture. You know, not just the church in America, it impacts the wider culture. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, for us as Christians, when we open the Bible, there's patriarchies on every page. Yes, it is. And, um, you know, the, the Bible's message emerges out of an, a full-fledged patriarchal culture. I mean, in the book of Genesis, you have this amazing first two chapters, but after the fall, the female begins to be marginalized she sort of starts to to disappear from this calling in genesis 1 and 2 and um you know it's and and where i've landed in this is that we've made the mistake of thinking patriarchy is the message mm. but patriarchy is not the message it's the backdrop to the message and when you learn about the patriarchal world, then the power of the Bible's message begins to explode. And when a woman sets foot out in the pages of scripture and God uses her to advance his purposes, it's it's a hundred times more significant than if it happened in our more egalitarian culture. Yes. You know, because it's just, you know, they're... In, under patriarchy, a woman's job is to produce sons. And the women in Genesis who are barren are not pleading with God for daughters. They're pleading for sons. And you, and you measure a woman's value by counting her sons. So it's, you know, that's, what, that's how their ruling and subduing has been submerged in a different calling and um 
and yet the Bible keeps it keeps subverting that all the way through. You know, you have someone as minor in the culture as Hagar, who gives us a deeper understanding of the intimate side of God. She's a theologian and she's a prophet. She takes that message back to Abraham and Sarah, that this is the God who sees me. You know, it's huge. And I know another, another story, um, which I, there's, I could have you talk about each woman in the Bible, because each of those stories are huge and how they, just turn the tables on the patriarchy and what Jesus, how Jesus still uses them. But I know I heard you talk about that Ruth, and I know you have a book um, just about Ruth, but how her story really was a game changer for you because you could debate scripture or see contradicting scripture. But when reading Ruth, you were like, this is, this is what changes the story for me. So talk a little bit about her story and why that was so impactful for you. Yeah, I, you know, I was in a, I was in a class, a seminary listening to an Old Testament professor talk about new research on the book of Ruth. And I just remember, I didn't do this physically, but inside I was rolling my eyes because I thought, I know this story backwards and forwards. I've even taught it. And um, the way we've taught it is typically as a beautiful romance between Ruth and Boaz. Mm -hmm. And we sort of pushed Naomi to the side. She sort of, you know, all her troubles just sort of set the stage for the meeting between the lovers in this story. Um, But cast against the patriarchal backdrop, a very different story emerges and scholars are saying now, and this is some of the leading Old Testament scholars, that we are looking at the story of a female Job. Mm-hmm. that Naomi is a female Job, that she's lost her husband and her two sons. She's postmenopausal, so she doesn't get to start over. And if you count Naomi's sons, she's a zero. She doesn't have any sons. And her daughter-in-law even drops below zero because she ends up being a an immigrant, you know, so we're not talking about Deborah, Priscilla, or Junia, or any of right. the names that we argue about. And um, what, when you, when you, when you talk about this as a story about God, when you talk about Naomi's struggles and you validate them, I mean, the language in the book of Ruth is very similar to the language in the book of Job, but we weep for Job and we throw Naomi to the side of the road. But Naomi's story is important, and it is her story. And God is going to answer her charges against him through the actions of her daughter-in-law, Ruth. And what threw me to the floor was when this professor said, when you look at the book of Ruth, Ruth is initiating the action, and Boaz is responding to her. Mm -hmm. And... You know, I grew up hearing that the word initiate wasn't part of my vocabulary. And I was even at a conference recently where they, you know, wanted to argue with me about that the man in the marriage is the initiator. Mm -hmm. But when I saw the book of Ruth and I saw that Ruth is leading the action, it was over for me. 
Mm. It was, and, and what she's doing is she's talking to Boaz about three mosaic laws. Boaz is in impeccable compliance with mosaic law. It's the gleaning law. He allows gleaners in his field. And then at the threshing floor, she throws at him the leveret law, which says the blood brother of a dead man is to marry his widow if he dies without a son, and that the son born to that union takes the dead man's place on the family tree. And the kinsman redeemer law is about real estate, not about marriage. It's about real estate that the nearest relative is to purchase a man's property if he falls on hard times. And it doesn't say how he falls on time, hard times. It doesn't matter. They're supposed to buy that land. They're supposed to take from their estate and invest in his, protecting it from falling into the hands of someone outside their tribe. And in the year of Jubilee, it's going to revert back to the original owner. So... Boaz isn't the blood brother and he isn't the nearest relative. And, and what she's proposing in both instances comes from the fact that she lives on the hungry side of the law. Mm-hmm. She lives on the side of the law that the law is supposed to protect. And she is giving a vastly more generous interpretation of the spirit of the law. Boaz is in compliance with the letter. She talks to him about the spirit. Mm. And, you know, the letter of the law says, let them glean. The spirit of the law says, feed them. The letter of the law says a blood brothers to marry his dead man, his dead brother's widow. And that the nearest relative is to buy the land of his relative. And Boaz isn't the blood brother, and he's not the nearest relative. And besides that, the law doesn't really say what Ruth is proposing. And Boaz, who is the biggest figure in the story, listens to her. And he learns from her. And he changes, and he grows, and he acts. And he is a powerful man who could do anything he wanted to her and no one would take her word for his, but he uses his power to empower her and it costs him to do that. And it's just, it, for it's, me, that story was the end of it all. Cause I, I just thought, you know, she is doing what God created his, his daughters to do. She's paying attention She's thinking about what does it mean to live as God's child in the world where these kinds of sufferings and losses are going on. And she sticks her neck out. And she's the last person you would think to do that. And it's at a a terrible risk to herself. I mean, I think Naomi would have locked her up if she had known she was going (laughs) to do those things. But, you know, and God's... Go ahead. God's purposes for the whole world advance through the actions of these three people because they're all involved in it in the end. It's, you know, and I, you know, I just think we can argue till we die about what can a woman do or what shouldn't she do. And I have come to a point where, you know, it's not 
a badge of honor to be wearing a clean uniform at the end of the game. I don't want to stand before Jesus in a clean uniform. And I'd rather be explaining why I did too much than why I did too little. Uh, That's so good. I just think we're, we're talking about the wrong things. Yeah. And that's why it's like, I don't, I'm kind of at the point where you're like, I don't want to keep debating these verses. I don't want to keep debating what Paul said because that's, it's so much bigger than that. And one of the things you have so many quotes, I've highlighted so much of your book, half the church, but you say, I grieve that far too many women and girls are living with small visions of themselves and of their purpose. When half the church holds back, whether by choice or non-choice, everybody suffers and our mission suffers setbacks. And that's what it's about. It's not these little verses arguing like, and like I, it's, it's women being all in for Jesus and our daughters being all in for Jesus. And I think that's what really encouraged me as, you know, I've kind of skated by probably just taking a backseat until I had a 16 year old that I'm like, really, is that, do I want to tell her she can be anything except this in the church or hold back for mm-hmm. Jesus? Like, no, you, you need to be all in. And that's the vision that we need to have as women and for our daughters. It's not yeah. about these other little verses. So yeah. Her- and it's, it's about, yeah. it's about our stewardship before yes. God. And I think, you know, we, the, what the apostle Paul wrote in the epistles, what the epistles contain was utterly radical in the 20, in the first century. And he's taking Jesus and the gospel of Jesus into the first century. And it's, it's, it's utterly radical. What he it said. is, which we don't, we don't know so, that if you're not reading and learning, because but if we, if we, if we just woodenly take what he's writing to people, then where there's child marriage, where women aren't educated, where husbands ha- can divorce their wife and throw her out on the streets. And he can, he can tell his wife to kill any baby girl that's born to them and keep the boys, you know, all this kind. And he has slaves. It's the kinds of things that he's saying into the 20, into the first century, we need to be saying things as radical into the 21st century and you know when you think about our mission and when you think about what's in our faces right now with me too and church too the church should be the place where there is the most robust flourishing of men women and children where it is the safest most nourishing place on earth yeah you know, that's, and I say, every text in the Bible has to come under the scrutiny of Genesis 1 and 2, mm-hmm. because everything else is coming to us in a fallen world, and it's corrective, and it's exposing, and it's, you know, leading us to Jesus and to something that is utterly new. We never saw what was supposed to happen after Genesis 2. We never saw it. And, you know, so we're sort of feeling our way. We are. And, and it's and it's a journey. I know you've even said that this journey has been agonizing at points for you and shifting a little bit. I know 9-11 was a game changer for you also. Yeah. So let's talk about that because I want to talk about, too, the global vision. Like, I think that's such yeah. a powerful, deeper part of your 
vision and mission and what you talk about because we the american church we tend to forget about that like we're such a small pocket in this conversation and it's such a bigger one so talk about what why 9-11 was a game changer for you and then um you know half the sky let's get into that a little bit okay okay yeah get past paul's verses okay we'll just put links if you're still struggling (laughs) with those we'll have to put some links up for you (laughs) that the thing is, we have a very Western, middle-class, upper-middle-class American theology. Yes. You know, and I can grow up thinking that I'm going to stay at home and somebody's going to take care of me and pay all the bills. But, you know, when 9-11 happened, we started seeing women living under burqas. Mm-hmm. And we started hearing that little girls in Afghanistan were being banned from education when they turned eight. And we started learning and books like Half the Sky came out and exposed the violence and the human rights abuses against women and girls around the world. And I don't think we can develop our theology without thinking of them and and that's what I you know when I went back to Genesis 1 and 2 I wanted something I could tell to a woman who's been trafficked Mm -hmm. and you know in our purity culture you know I I ran across a quote recently where Elizabeth Smart who was kidnapped at 14 she said the first time her kidnapper raped her Mm -hmm. she said no one is going to want me now. Oh my gosh. Hmm. Yeah. But I mean that, I mean, we have survivors of sexual abuse in our youth groups and they're hearing that if you have had sex before marriage, you're like a piece of chewed gum. Yep. Okay. So then where are we? You know, well, it's, it's that God's purposes for us can be damaged and destroyed and cheated from us or, um, you know, we can ruin them ourselves and not that his purposes for his daughters and his sons are indestructible. Right. And not, and if you look at that globally, what are the percentage of girls and women that have been raped in other countries? Like it was three or four, three out of four. I mean, it's very high. And it's like, how, how are you sending that message? So what is, what's the message that we're sending? Yeah. And And how do we send, send the message to them that they're supposed to be stay at home moms? Right. You know, it's, it's a privilege to be able to do that. It's a, it's a huge privilege to be able to do that. And the gospel message is not adjusting for where you live. We have to have a message that fits everybody. Right. And 9-11 started open, opening your eyes with that. Um, yeah. And so you mentioned, we've mentioned Half the Sky, which I have read too. And I actually, have you seen the movie, the video movie that goes along with it? Mm, yeah. Okay. It's, I mean, and that's just as powerful. And I know I'm, I'm wrestling a lot with this, not because I don't believe it, but how, how does the gospel apply to that? Like, tell me, and what do we do with it? Sitting yeah. where we are in a very white privileged, I have the luxury of staying home with my kids. Like, what do we do with that? It's not, um, yeah, what is God's vision for us and them, that, how we work together with that? Well, and that's where I go back to Genesis 1 and 2, okay? Because Genesis 1 says that every woman in the Congo who's being raped, every girl in the world 
who's being trafficked. Every woman and girl who's been sexually violated is God's image bearer. Mm -hmm. And even you know, calling people names and berating people on the streets and all the kinds of things we are witnessing today, all of that is an affront to God because they are his image bearers. So the atrocities are escalated in their significance because of who is being assaulted. And that we are called to be God's image bearers, that we are created to rule and subdue and engage in the battle against the enemy and to live fruitful, productive lives with the gifts that God has given us. That is cemented in Genesis 1. And, you know, the image bearer calling, you, you can't go higher than that. Right. You can't, you know, feminism doesn't go higher than that. Feminism tells us to look at the men and we want what they have and we want to be, you know, whatever they've got, we want it to. It's not, you know, our center is our creator and he's the one who teaches us who we are. And so that's the starting point for every single woman who's left under a burqa or who is, you know, being abused in some way in a, home here in America on the job or, you know, in the fields of some country. Um, it's, it's an affront to God and the offense of it is, is more escalated than we imagine. Right. And we should, I mean, we should be outraged, right? Yeah. I mean, we should not take that lightly. We should be caring deeply and not wanting the men to take care of it, we, we need to be mobilized as women and be right. caring deeply to take right. action. And I know, I know when I exchanged some emails with you last time, I was actually in Nicaragua and reading, finishing reading your book there. And it is such a different lens when you're looking around at women living in poverty and girls being sex trafficked. It's like, it's different. It's not this American eyes that we're looking yeah. at this gospel of, prosperity. Um, and so what do we do with that? Like, as the, I know, like as the church, what do we do with it? And why is it damaging, you know, that, the, that we, this middle, oh, our middle-class, upper-class church is not the message that we're sending. Why is that damaging? And what do we do with it? Where do we go with it? Yeah. Well, I just, you know, I think we have to go back to our roots. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when you look at what's happening in the church with church too, and yes, there's something so wrong. And, you know, I think we have to rethink our messaging for women and girls. Because when all we talk about is submission and silence, you that puts us at risk. Yes. It doesn't, it doesn't teach us to develop spine, to learn how to say no, to, to make decisions and, and judgments about behavior that is going to harm somebody. Um, you know, it makes our default to be to concede. And, you know, both of those words are in the Bible and both of those words have to do with women, but they are redefined by Jesus' gospel. Mm -hmm. You know, because it's not a ban on the female voice. It's a call to learn. 
and it's not a it's not a call to give in submission is an act of thought and strength and determination and commitment to god's purposes it's not you know a promise concession um, to men and it, we don't do them any service when we when we are just saying yes and you know that i go back to um well let me finish that thought we need sure. to we need to rethink our our messaging for men and boys you know because power is at the center of how we talk to them yes. and you know they use it against one another so it's not just harmful to to women and girls it's har- it's harmful to other men you know you've got to you've got to be over others you've got to be at the top you've got to assert your manhood um and that's not what jesus did or taught and he should be the first place we go when we talk about masculinity and i think i heard you i don't think i know because i wrote it down that i heard you say in an interview you cannot shed your male power and privilege but it's what you do with it so we're, yeah. you're, you're not asking we're not asking men like be lower than you are but same with women not be lower step down it's it's what men are going to do with that power just like boaz like yeah. let uh, Ruth initiate, let her take the lead with that. It's, it's this partnership. Well, and it's more than letting it's you're right. You're it, right. It, it, <laughs> yeah. He, I'm, see, he, I'm working on my, my vocabulary too. Yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't like the word let because right. I think the Bible teaches that our brothers need us. Yeah. So, you know, when he, when he listened right. to her, he wasn't, he, he was, yeah, he was, being gracious and kind, but he was actually doing himself a favor. Yeah. And that's how, yeah, he stands so tall on the, on the pages of scripture. And there are, there in Maelstrom, I wrote about some of these men who defy the culture's, you know, pull on them to be exerting power over others. And you see the gospel break out in their stories in such amazing and beautiful ways um and that's an example i need to work on my vocabulary too but it's what we're kind of ingrained with it still as much as i'm like (laughs) we're beating down the door and we want them to let us in yes and and i genesis 1 and 2 especially the creation of the woman in genesis genesis 2 is saying god is saying you need what i am creating and I'm, and it's not the creation of the wife; it's the creation of the female. And he uses very strong language when he says who he's creating. He says it's the azer connecto, and connecto means she's his match. But the azer is a very strong military word. It shows up in men's names like Abai Azer and Ellie Azer and just plain Azer. So it's. Isn't that amazing? It really yeah. is. I mean, I had read and heard that before, and it's like, it's not just a helper. It is like a warrior helper. And the yeah. Ephesians, the armor of God. Um, as we talk, I'm curious, because I know you have a daughter too. And, you know, when we think back at your story at the beginning and what you were taught growing up as a daughter, how has that, your story and what you were taught changed dramatically what, how you've raised your own daughter and taught her growing up? And I know she's alive with her own family right now, but, um, and out of the house, but how did you raise her differently? You know, and this is one of the hard parts for me because I'm coming to this later. Okay. You know, so I didn't start out with that. Okay. And, you know, I always felt like, 
we needed to find out what her gifts were mm -hmm. and what she's capable of doing. So she's never been held back in terms of, you know, you're a girl. And so, and I, you know, I have two little granddaughters now. I call, we call them our grandazers. And, <laughs> you know, and I, you want them to be strong. My goodness, especially in light of the kinds of things that are happening to girls today. Yes. You know, you want, you want no to be in their vocabulary. And, um, you know, I'm thankful that there are books coming out that are giving this empowering message to girls. I, I heard about a group of, middle school girls here in the area at a Christian school who were going through lost women of the Bible with their art teacher. Wow, that's and, cool. you know, I just said, I have to meet these girls. Mm, yes. <laughs> so I went and met with them and I have to tell you, it was incredible. You know, these young girls were on fire and they were thinking about what, what is God calling me to do and be and, you know, one of them said, I was going to be a veterinarian, but I think I want to go to seminary now. Oh, and, wow. You know, but some of them were, I mean, being a veterinarian would be awesome, but they were just, and then they just talked, you know, and one of them said, I'm, I'm as important as any boy, you know, it was just sort of amazing to hear them talk like that and why aren't we hearing the stories of these strong women in church why don't we hear their stories and um and one of them yeah yeah it is and i and i think as mothers of daughters it's so crucial that we of course it's so crucial that the church does too but i unfortunately it's not happening there as it should as but mothers of daughters we've got to make sure we're sending this message um yeah and that the, that the purpose is not for you to be building your empire the purpose is always other focused yes you know it's always you know, and that's where we've gotten stuck, you know, where we're talking about, well, who's in charge and who gets to lead and who has to follow. And the fact is when your house is burning down, everybody leads, you know? Right. And, and I think being an image bearer is an implicit call to leader leadership. And that doesn't mean you get the title or the corner office. It means you have responsibility for what's going on and a responsibility, not just to, you know, be upset, but to do something about it. And I'm seeing women all over the world who are stepping up and some of the women who have been abused the most mm. are moving out of that deeply wounded place with enormous power to help others. And, you know, if you find even with all of these gals who've been, these women who have been um, sexually abused, like Rachel Jen Hollander and Krista mm -hmm. Brown and so many others, Mary DeMuth, that they're speaking up and telling their stories as painful as that is because they want to protect others. Yeah. You know, and it's, and I think that's, that's how the gospel should drive us. And, um, yeah, absolutely. And the stories in the Bible. And that's why, I mean, I have a passion for women telling their stories and 
I think it's, it is in Half the Sky where it says women are not the problem, but women are the solution. And it's like women, we've got to step up and we do have, God's put us in a position that we, it's not about power, but it is about, like you said, being his image bearers. And it's so much deeper. And that's why I just love, love your message so much. And I know one of the things which um, I want to touch on just briefly, but again, it's how you, it's just another example of how you go deeper. That you will never say it's about being egalitarian or complementarian. You won't say that. And I love that because it's like, it's not even about that. And some, that word could do harm in some cultures. And even if you, a church is that way here, it might not really be acting out. So talk about those terms a little bit and how we need to get past getting stuck on those. Yeah. You know, I just, I just think, we need to go deeper. Yes. And, um, you know, and I upset people in both camps um, because that's sort of the way, you know, that's sort of the way we think, you know. It is. And, and it's the funny thing about, you know, my work is that when they don't hear their language, like if I don't end the book by saying I condemn women's <laughs> ordination or I approve of, you know, I support women's ordination, um, they think I'm with the other guys. <laughs> right. And, and yet, you know, I think, I think we're called to something bigger, something more sacrificial, um, and something that is summoning all of us to action. Yes. And, you know, I just, I just, I've always been troubled by it. Um, because it's a litmus test. I don't want to take that litmus test. And, um, and it's, you know, I don't want to hold anybody back. I'm not going to tell anybody to hold back. Right. And I think we need to be calling our brothers out because a lot of them are being marginalized too. You know, if they show up in church and they don't have the right bank account or the right credentials, nobody thinks about, do they have pastoral gifts or, and some of them have incredible gifts and, you know, but they're just, you know, you can set up the chairs it's that kind of thing. Right. So it's, you know, we need, we need all hands on deck and everybody's on a front line. It doesn't matter where you are. It's a kingdom front line. And, um, you know, very few of us are going to land in top leadership spots that are acknowledged by everyone, but, you know, we should be calling each other out. And, and the thing about the book of Ruth that I love is that both women were zeros mm. in the culture. Yeah. Neither woman would show up on the radar of the culture. And yet they were God's point persons mm. to advance his purposes. And even Naomi in the end is called to raise the grandfather of the king on the theology she learned in the school of suffering. So even she is remobilized for the kingdom and they never knew it. They never knew it. And, and we don't know how God might use us. You know, you don't know where your podcast is going and where somebody who listens to some interview you have with Sarah Bessie or somebody else is rippling out in other conversations. You have no idea, you know, right. you have no, and you never will know. And, you know, probably when we think we can assess our impact, we're dead wrong. You know, it's just... You're yeah. so right. And it's, 
I know Kat Armstrong's book, No, no More Holding Back, is one that you recommend, which I had yeah. her on too. And that's mm-hmm. so much of her message. It's like, it's not these labels or what fitting in these boxes. It is like full power, being that force that God has created you to be not holding back. Um, and if you don't mind, do you mind for just the last few minutes, another story that I just love that you talk about in half the church is that of Mary. And we overlook that one too, as like, oh, you know, that's just a little pretty, pretty little girl that brought the savior of the world. But that is so much of a bigger story too, of turning the patriarchy upside down, of Joseph not doing what he could have done to her. So do you mind ending on that note, sharing that? Because we're entering the holiday season and I think we look at that story so wrong often um, in terms of really what Mary did in her role. Yeah, well, but it, you know, set up the patriarchal backdrop. You know, she's been betrothed. She probably has known for most of her life that she would be married to Joseph. It's an arrangement where money has changed hands and families have negotiated and, you know, you look at a world where there are honor killings that happened in biblical times, you know, where she, when she shows up pregnant with this wild story, mm. you know, she could have been stoned. Yes. And, you know, she in, instead, you know, the angel doesn't appear to her father. The angel doesn't appear to Joseph to ask if this would be all right. The angel appears to Mary and she has the agency to make a choice for herself. And she makes a choice that will endanger her because, you know, Joseph in that culture needs to defend his masculinity. Yes. And, you know, he, he's, he's the lead story in Matthew's gospel. He would be the, the cover picture (laughs) on that gospel. And he is a man who is described as a righteous man, which, you know, when you line that up with the Pharisees, it could have meant, meant really something awful for Mary. And she's probably 13 or 14 years old. Mm -hmm. She's, you know, in, in under patriarchy, when a girl hits puberty, she's marriageable because she can start, you know, she can get pregnant and there's a desperate quest for sons. And um, so she does it. And Joseph, Joseph is not, Joseph is a different kind of man. He puts the righteousness of Jesus on display in the opening scenes of Matthew's gospel. It's It's not the righteousness of the Pharisees. And what he does is countercultural in every way. You know, his first action is to divorce her privately. You know, he can't marry her when she's gotten pregnant. And, you know, we all know how, pe- how girls get pregnant. Right. And, you know, she's telling this crazy story. And then the angel clues him in. And Joseph who would be an older man, there's always this, you know, we have child marriages in, in under patriarchy. So he would be older. Don't know how much older, but he decides, he decides to put her to divorce her privately. And then the angel clues him in and he chooses to take her as his wife. He ends up shutting down his carpenter shop and getting behind God's calling on his wife. It's a, mm-hmm. it's a, it's a beautiful story 
of role reversal, and he is absolutely critical in protecting Mary and Jesus in yes. that culture and shielding her. He doesn't he doesn't do the manly thing and defend his male honor in the culture, which is, you know, we hear stories of honor killings all the time, mm -hmm. just when girls are contemplating choosing their own husband. They can be buried alive and horrible things have happened. Yeah. But he he displays a kind of righteousness that reflects Jesus before Jesus is even born. It's a righteousness that protects and looks for the good of somebody else at cost to yourself. It's a picture of, you know, the Old Testament word hesed, which is a, the kind of love God has for us that is costly, voluntary, and sacrificial, and stubborn. And that's the kind of love we need from God. And that's the kind of love his image bearers are supposed to display. And we see it over and over and over again in the Bible through men and women who embrace their calling and step up. And mm -hmm. both of them are doing that. Mary's risking her life and he's risking his reputation. And, you know, we all benefit. We all are indebted to them. It's, a, it's an incredibly chilling story that we've just sort of domesticated but yes we have and just listening to you tell it under that lens and framework I mean it just I could just tear up because it's so much more powerful than we yeah. give it credit for as are so many of the stories in the Bible especially those of women and one of your books um, called Lost Women of the Bible which I have read I highly recommend that's what you talked about that group doing you talk you go into these stories like the mm. women that we are we're overlooking and that we haven't looked at the stories as deeply as we should. So where you can be found and we'll link that up on your episode website and we'll link up your books and all of that. Great. I'm on carolyncustisjames.com. Okay. That's my website. Yes. And you have a blog on there and talk about your speaking engagements and right. your books can be found on there. So we'll connect folks with that. But I just want to Again, thank you for your time and sharing this. I know you're in, in demand for speaking and you just spoke at a conference last weekend and I just appreciate you taking the time to share with me and my audience. I think I could listen to you talk all day. <laughs> thank you, Andrea. And thanks for, thanks for the encouragement this is to me. I hope this conversation with Carolyn left you thinking deeper about your role as an image bearer of Christ. Male or female, we are all his image bearers. As Carolyn says, this vision frames every woman's story and calls her to strive to be more, never less. For more wisdom and insights from Carolyn, I encourage you to check out her website and her books, which as always, I'll link up at the Her Story Speaks website at herstoryspeaks.com. I'll also put a link to the book we talked about, Half the Sky, which I encourage everyone to read. Also, if you listen to this podcast on iTunes, can you do me a favor and leave a review? It's super easy to do, and it helps others find the podcast more easily. Thanks for listening.